0: Five publishers turned down John Feinstein for his new book, Raise a Fist, Take a Knee. Most of them didn't even read the proposal, deciding that a book about race and sports was too polarizing to publish, especially during the holidays. Undeterred, John interviewed more than 100 people who'd experienced discrimination or eventual triumph. Of the 44 books he's written, starting with the number one bestseller, Season on the Brink, this is by far his most important. No one embodies the sporting life more than John Feinstein. He's written 44 books about everything from unheralded colleges playing in March Madness, which John remembers was actually played in March, not April, to the small emotional moments in the Army-Navy game, which he perfectly termed a civil war, to, of course, a season on the brink and a good walk spoiled. His latest book, Raise a Fist, Take a Knee, is an examination of sports and society. Hello, John.
1: Hello, Leslie. Thank you for that introduction. You read it just like I wrote it.
0: (laughs) Which I've done often in your case. Frequently. Um, This book is, um, it's so deep and it's so wide and it's so personal. How did you get your arms around the topic?
1: Well, that's a great question because I don't know that I did. Um, it's such a massive topic uh, and and goes way beyond sports, as we know, as we see every day in our society. But I, 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 like you, I, I've been around race in sports for more years than either one of us wants to admit. And. Uh, in 2017, I was working on a book on playing quarterback in the NFL. So I was in an NFL stadium every Sunday during the anthem protests. And I basically saw the same thing. Uh, I saw fans, 90% plus of them white, booing players, 90 plus percent of them black who were kneeling, without really knowing why they were booing, other than the fact that Donald Trump had said, you know, fire the SOBs and that, you know, had said that Colin Kaepernick should find another country to live in when he started the protests a year earlier. And I I thought to myself, we've never been more polarized racially than we are right now in 2017 when we had made made so much progress. So I went to see John Thompson and you were there for many of my battles with John back in the 1980s, one of which you caused, actually.
0: (laughs) I did. Just hold up there. But wait, you went because I was there. The one thing is, John, uh, that uh, John Thompson really respected you. But you went to John in peace to ask him about this book.
1: Yes. John and I had made our peace really uh, after he stopped coaching, not surprisingly. But also when I wrote a book on Red Hourback, who he loved uh, and he loved the book and that I started going on his radio show regularly and. In many ways, uh, in the last 10 years, he'd become a mentor, because one thing you and I both know is there was nobody smarter than John. Um, he, he was difficult as hell to deal with at times. But when you, when, when you shut up and listen to him, you were, you'd stand there and go, boy, that's making a lot of sense. And so I went to see him and I said, I want to write a book about race and sports, but I don't know where to begin, because it is such a massive topic. And he looked at me in that deep voice of his and said, you might as well try to explain the Holy Trinity. And (laughs) then he pointed a finger at me and said, which is why you have to do it. And so from that point forward, I knew I wanted to attempt this. And what gave me the in quote unquote, to to start the research, Leslie, was was Lamar Jackson, um, who in 2018 was being told that he should change positions. He should be a wide receiver. He should be a running back. And I, and I thought to myself, this, with his skill set, this would never happen to a white quarterback. Nobody ever said it to Steve Young, who was a running quarterback, or years ago, Fran Tarkenton, who was a running quarterback, and others. And of course, you know what happened. Ozzie Newsom, the first black general manager in the history of the NFL, took him with the 32nd and last pick of the first round after four white quarterbacks had gone in the top 10. And two years later, he's the MVP of the league, unanimously. The only other guy to do that is Tom Brady. And I thought to myself, OK, in the 1960s and 70s, guys were black quarterbacks were always told to find another position if they wanted to play in the NFL. And that was that was my opening to, to say I want to do this book to go to publishers, five of whom rejected the idea, by the way.
0: Wait, stop right there. You've written 44 books, many of them bestsellers, a couple of them number one bestsellers and publishers rejected it.
1: They were afraid of it uh, because it it was bound to be controversial. Um, 74 million people in this country voted for Donald Trump a year ago. Uh, I doubt if many of them are going to read this book, Leslie. And for me, that's like a badge of of honor. But for a lot of New York publishers, it's like, whoa, do we want to do this with someone who, uh, you know, isn't Spike Lee? Uh, And I just throw that name out as a sports fan. Um, but eventually I found a publisher, Little Brown, I'd been with them years ago and I started the research. And what I found was that my premise wasn't correct because saying that we're polarized racially is a little bit like saying Thanksgiving was a week ago. Uh, it's, it's a given that we're polarized racially. And, but what I did find, I interviewed about a hundred people, most of them black is that in 20, even in 2021, with all the progress we've made, uh, we're still, it's still much harder in this country to wake up in the morning as a black person than as a white person. Um, as Ed Tapscott, who was the first black CEO of an NBA team said to me, when you wake up in the morning and you're black, you have two jobs. One is your job, the other is to be black because there are gonna be people who look at you suspiciously differently Every person I interviewed who was black, Leslie, everyone had been stopped at least once, frequently, far more than once, for DWB, driving while black. I
0: do deeply appreciate uh, what you've done in this book, which is really, I you know, people throw this word around, but this is so such an important book. And I I want you to go back. You you were saying about Lamar Jackson, and uh, I remember Doug Williams once telling me. That when he was in Tampa, which was of course the Deep South then, right? It was. He said after that it was the Gulf, and he said he would get watermelons yes. in the mail.
1: Roddy and watermelon,
0: watermelon, and was it important to you, or why did you have him write the forward?
1: Well, uh, I, I go way back with Doug, like you do. Uh, I first met him in 1979, his second year playing quarterback for for the Bucks, and I was sent down to do a story on him and. You'll appreciate this. Uh, I I was I went to John McKay's Monday morning press conference and John McKay looked at me, and said, who are you? And I said, "Uh, my name's John Feinstein. I'm from The Washington Post. Well, what are you doing here? Well, I'm down here to do a story on Doug Williams. And he goes, really? You mean to tell me the paper of Woodward and Bernstein just now is discovering we have a black quarterback? (laughs) And then he was great afterwards. Great guy. I sat down with Doug I said to him, I am so sorry to have to ask you all these questions again. And he said, John, I've been a black quarterback all my life. It's not a problem. And we became friends. And of course, he's been in Washington for a while now. And when I did my quarterback book four years ago, he was one of my guys. And we, we got pretty close because we spent a lot of time together. And I interviewed him for this book, obviously, first black quarterback to win, start and win a Super Bowl. And when when my publisher was saying, is there anybody you interviewed who might write the forward? I had two thoughts. One was Tony Dungy and the other was Doug. And I asked Doug and he said yes. And I think he makes a lot of great points in the foreword. Yeah, he did a beautiful being, job with it. Yeah, he did. And one of them being John is not trying to pretend he can understand what it's like to be black because he can't. I can't. You can't. Um, but what I am trying to do is what I've sort of done my whole career, which is get people to tell me what it's like to be black. I mean, I, I said to one publisher who turned the book down, um, he said, well, you, you're not black. How can you write this book? And I said, well, I've never been a college basketball coach, but I've been able to write books about college basketball coaches. I've certainly never played on the professional golfers tour, but I've written lots of books about professional golf. Why can't I get people who have lived as black people to tell me what it's like. And I think that's what they did.
0: That's such a uh, a great analysis. Matter of fact, somebody I was on somebody else's podcast and they asked me about your book and made that claim. It was an African-American who asked me, well, you know, how can he write a book? And I said, i said you know i've been saying this myself my whole life that men aren't born with the ability to recognize a safety blitz they learned it because they loved it as i did and it it you know led me to canton to the hall of fame so it isn't um genetic that you can't uh, ask them questions and they can't tell you what their lives have been like and i i don't know i'm so, i guess i'm so personally resentful of you know every all the old one is right when um People, when women have babies, many times, most times it had been a male doctor.
1: All of my books have always come down to reporting. And they, they and that's what I did here. And the, I I, and I was lucky that so many people were so honest with me. I got to talk to Tommy Smith. I got to talk to John Carlos. I talked to all the early quarterbacks, starting with Marlon Briscoe and James Harris and, and of course, Doug and and and. Warren Moon. Warren Moon. Yes, who who had to play in the Canadian Football League for six years because nobody would draft him coming out of the University of Washington, and then when he finally got to the NFL at 27, all he did was have a Hall of Fame career. And 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 and, and then it was interesting to come forward and talk to Patrick Mahomes and talk to Eric who who is the prime example to me today of why it's so much harder to get a head coaching job when you're black than white. Eric Bieniemy has run the best offense in football for the last three years. He's had 11 head coaching interviews. He still doesn't have a job. And yet you see all these 35 year old white guys getting hired. And and it's mostly because they look like Sean McVay.
0: You got more out of Mike Tomlin or he shared more with you than I have ever read about Mike Tomlin, but explain, uh, was it because of the Rooney rule that he was in the right place at the right time? And why hasn't it flourished?
1: You know, they had technically met their Rooney rule obligation that the Steelers had uh, by uh, interviewing Ron Rivera, who counts as a minority. The NFL has a strange way of counting minority coaches. Ron Rivera grew up in California, uh, but his, he has his Hispanic parents. So that makes him a minority. I actually asked Brian McCarthy, who I'm sure you know from the NFL, that if Marv Levy and Sid Gilman were still coaching today, since they're Jewish, would they be counted as minorities? And he said, no. What happened was on Tony Dungy's recommendation, they brought him in for an interview. And it was really just to be polite to Tony, who of course had played in Pittsburgh, uh, played quarterback in the big 10 in the seventies, wasn't drafted and ended up in the NFL as a defensive back, but they brought him in. And, and Art Rooney, who's, uh, Dan Rooney, who's since passed away, said Mike blew them away. Well, if you've ever been in a room with Mike, you can understand why he'd blow people away. Um, He's just so damn smart, Leslie. And he's so honest. And for some reason, Tony Dungy actually set me up to talk to him because I didn't know Mike. And it was one of those deals you've dealt, you've had it happen to you as a reporter. Sometimes you just hit it off with someone right away. And I I said to Mike at the end, I said, is it okay if I circle back to you? And he said, absolutely. Here's my cell number. Call me anytime. And I did. Um, And he he gets it. He 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 understands why there are only three black coaches in the NFL, which is why. But it's but it's frustrating to him. It's because of the owners. You know, I asked him about Roger Goodell and, you know, how is, is he responsible? I asked Tony Dungy the same question. They both said. Roger Goodell is embarrassed by the situation. He understands this is bad and it's wrong, but he can't tell the owners who to hire or what to do because he doesn't want to lose his $44 million a year job. And I can understand that.
0: I bet he was embarrassed. I bet he is embarrassed.
1: Yeah, I I suspect he is. Uh, I've been very critical of a lot of the things he's done and not done, but I, I, I think he is embarrassed. Um, and, and I think that's, the, he was the only commissioner who refused to talk to me and I've never had any bad meeting. There are a lot of people who don't talk to me cause they don't like me, but I don't think Roger Goodell likes or dislikes me. He just knew this was a topic where he, he didn't have answers. I mean, if he was going to be honest, he would say, John, I can't get a bunch of old white men to, to be more open about who they hire. And, you know, you look around what, what Tony Dungy said to me that, and Mike said too, is, don't tell me there aren't qualified candidates because they're all over the place. I mean, look at the Buccaneers coordinators and what they did last year uh, and and again, uh, look at Eric Bieniemy. He's had eleven interviews, and I don't know if you've ever talked to him, Leslie. Yeah, guy okay. Trust me, he doesn't he he interviews well, you know, whether with you or me or with an owner. And that's not the reason he hasn't been hired. And he's great about it. He says, "My, I just haven't walked into a room that was my job yet. And he will. He will get a job. But it should have been two or three years ago.
0: Back up to uh, there's so many poignant stories in this book. But uh, give me a story about uh, Ozzie Newsome and James Harris and Tony Dungy.
1: Uh, well, let's start with Ozzie, um, who I've known since I did my book on the Ravens back in 2004. And Ozzie is not, neither Ozzy nor none of these three guys are jump on a table and and shout guys. They're they're, they're all very quiet. In fact, James was so soft-spoken when he got to the NFL that he actually trained in front of a mirror in order to make sure he had, for lack of a better term, the quarterback's voice when he got in the huddle. Uh, And uh, Ozzy called James Harris about Lamar Jackson because Lamar Jackson's soft-spoken. And he said, will that be a problem? And he said, no. And here's why. This is what I did. And Ozzie and James, of course, worked together in Baltimore and are still very good friends. But Ozzie told me that in 1970, when he was 14 years old, um, before you and I were born, of course, (laughs) (laughs) but when he was 14 years old, he went to a Pop Warner football tryout. And when he got there, the coaches said, "Okay, quarterbacks here, linebackers here, running backs there. And he started walking towards the quarterbacks because in the schoolyard, he always played quarterback because he was the best player. And as he got there, he noticed everybody else was white. And he thought to himself, they're not going to let me play quarterback. I mean, at that point, uh, Marlon Briscoe had played 11 games for the Denver Broncos in 1968, finished second in the rookie of the year voting and never got to play quarterback again, became a very good wide receiver, but never got to play quarterback again. And James Harris had played one game. Uh, for the Buffalo Bills. That was it for black quarterbacks in professional football. And he said, they're not going to let me play quarterback. So he went over with the receivers and of course ended up in the hall of fame as a receiver. But what he said to me that was fascinating was it's 50 years later. And obviously we've made all sorts of progress. Just look at the top six or seven quarterbacks in the NFL right now. But I still feel like you have to be twice as good to be accepted as a quarterback, a general manager. He was the first black general manager, of course, and won two Super Bowls, uh, or as a coach. And the numbers back that up, uh, particularly among coaches, three out of 32, GMs, which went to five out of 32 last year. One of them, Martin Mayhew in Washington, reports to the coach, Ron Rivera, but he has the general manager's title. And you know, Richard Lapchick, who I'm sure you're familiar with, um, puts together these numbers every year And they haven't changed that much.
0: So where do you think I know it's a big societal question, but where do you think it's learned? Because kids aren't born
1: racist. Right. There's a song I heard years ago. You you have to be taught to hate and fear. I think that that, you know, it it is something that it's environmental. Uh, It's definitely I mean, I grew up in New York City, as you said, I played ball. Uh, all the time with white kids, black kids, and Hispanic kids. And all we cared about was, could you play? Uh, And, uh, you know, Gary Williams, your old friend from his BC days, who became a Hall of Fame coach at Maryland, grew up in Camden, New Jersey. And frequently, he was the only white kid on the schoolyard. And he said the best thing about it was the scoreboard was all that mattered. You know, if you could play, you could play. If you couldn't play, you couldn't play. It didn't matter what color you were, what religion you were. Playing is a meritocracy. That's why 75% of the NBA is Black. 75% of the NFL is Black. Half the Division I college football players are Black. But coaching, being a CEO, that's not necessarily a meritocracy. That's where a lot of men want someone who looks like them to be leading their team. Here's an example. I don't think I don't know Ryan Pace, the Bears general manager. I don't think I assume he's not a racist. But tell me how he could look at Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson and Mitchell Trubisky and say Trubisky's the guy I want. I mean, I, I don't consider myself an expert on football. I watch football, have for years, but I'd never scouted it. But I, you know, I remember looking at those three guys and saying, Frankly, I said I said Watson won, Mahomes too. But in every list, in my mind, Trubisky was no better than third. He'd started for one year. Um, the, the, you know, Deshaun Watson had been in two national championship games. Patrick Mahomes had statistics that were just ridiculous. And and I watched him a lot at Texas Tech. Um, actually, interviewed his father when he was pitching for the Cardinals years ago.
0: Uh, Red Sox also, please, and the Mets. Right, (laughs) the journeyman.
1: But the point is, uh, there's there's a subconscious thing that goes on sometimes, and that that's that's an issue. And and for example, John, I think John Gruden honestly believes he doesn't have a racist bone in his body. I think he honestly believes that, but clearly he does.
0: Well, what does he call it? If it's not racist to say those things, what do you think he calls it?
1: Well, I don't know because I haven't spoken to him since he made that statement. And but I get I get tweets all the time because I'm not as smart as you, and I do tweet um, from people saying, "Why are you always bringing race into this?" Well, because race is it, race is in this. And Tony Dungy told me he gets the same thing when he's commented on the fact that two of the last twenty hires, coaching hires in the NFL, have been black. People say, "Why are you making this a racial issue?" And his answer is, "I'm not making it a racial issue. It is a racial issue."
0: Tell me a little more about you. I actually don't know the answer to this, and you think I would after 40 years. But as you said, you were a child of the west side of Manhattan. Both your parents are musical authorities. How does that kid get into sports writing?
1: Yeah, I'll tell you a quick funny story about that. When my dad was running the Kennedy Center, I was in college. But I had a political science professor named David Pallets, And one day I was walking out of class and he said to me, I was sports editor of the student newspaper at that point. It was my junior year. And he said, are you related to Martin Feinstein? And I said, yeah, he he's my dad. And Pallett shook his head and said, he must be so ashamed.
0: <laughs> i never heard that.
1: And I, I don't think my father, he, he got over me being a sports writer. I'm not sure he got over me going to, to Duke instead of Yale. He, I don't think he ever completely forgave me for that. But Um, But my parents, as you said, were both in music. My mom got her Ph.D. in music history from Columbia. My dad uh, ran the Kennedy Center, the Washington Opera, the National Symphony. Uh, And the two of them had very little interest in sports. But I grew up on the streets of New York. We played ball. We played in the schoolyard. Uh, We played in the park across the street from where I lived. I was a decent athlete. I wasn't a great athlete, but I was a decent athlete. And I just love sports. I mean, I, I by the time I was 10, believe it or not, I was riding the subway to games at Shea Stadium, Yankee Stadium and Madison Square Garden. I knew the subway routes cold.
0: You know, you've always been so spoiled. Of course, you would be in New York in their one glory year they ever had. Sixty nine. Right. That was your childhood.
1: That, that, uh, yes. Those were my teams. Uh, the That's <laughs> uh, I was there October 16, 69 when they won the, the uh, World Series. Uh, the Jets, of course, January 12, 69. And the Knicks, I was there May 8, 1970. Now, I was not at the Super Bowl in Miami, but in those days, the Super Bowl was played in the afternoon. And I used to pace in front of the television set when the Jets were playing because uh, I was coaching them. And my parents, in the afternoon, Sunday afternoon, they went to a concert. And they came home, and my dad walked in and said, So, how are the Jets doing? I said, Dad, they're up 16 0. And he knew enough to know that that was stunning. So we sat down to watch and I'm pacing. And dad says, John, for God's sake, sit down. You're making me crazy. I said, dad, I have to pace. I'm coaching the team. And he said, sit down. They're winning 16 nothing." Well, I sit down. Johnny United takes the Colts 80 yards in seven plays or something. And <clears throat> dad says, go ahead and pace. Yeah, it's Martin's,
0: <laughs> Martin's fault. You know, this can't be right, but I think I had a conversation with Michael Phelps. It, it's too absurd, but I'll just say that you had some world swimming record. That can't be possible on a relay,
1: that, on a relay. I was part it, of a, it. can't be the, possible. The, the plaque's right over there. And there's actually a picture behind me of the four of us. Taken no way. after. And uh, I did. In fact, I have a, a picture of Michael Phelps. A friend of mine swam at North Baltimore Aquatic, which is where Michael grew up, and he got Michael. You want me to go get it? Yeah, I'd like to see it. But it's a photo of Phelps swimming, and it says from one world record holder to another. Oh,
0: God, that is so <laughs> embarrassing. Your father was right.
1: Well, I am a world record holder. Well, and, how and,
0: so? Details, please.
1: Well, um, I, I I started swimming Masters, which is. Anybody 25 and up. Uh, shortly after my son Danny was born. Um, it was after my mom had died of a heart attack, and I went to see my doctor, you know, for checkup. And he said to me, You have any interest in seeing your son grow up? Yes. And he said, Well, you're not going to. You're way overweight, your cholesterol's high, your blood pressure is high. You got to start exercising. So the only thing I knew how to do it all was swim. So I started swimming again, and God was I in terrible shape. But Eventually, I got into decent shape and I joined a master swimming team called the Ancient Mariners.
0: Which is a <laughs> great true.
1: name for a bunch of old swimmers. And I was fortunate enough to be on a team with Clay Britt, who was a three time NCAA champion at Texas, Wally Dix, who in 2000 became the oldest man to ever qualify for the Olympic trials at 38, uh, and a guy named Michael uh, Fell, who was the two time ACC sprint champion at uh, Clemson. And I was the butterfly. And uh, at the national championships in 2000, uh, we swam uh, the, the medley relay in the 40 plus age group. And uh, we broke the world record uh, by a fair margin, not a huge margin, but a fair margin. I was never so scared in my life, Leslie. Uh, I'm like you. I've interviewed a lot of famous people. But as we were walking to, to onto the deck, to the blocks, Clay Britt, the backstroker, says to me, are you shivering because it's cold or because you're scared? And I said, both. This is just an astonishing story. It's astonishing that I would be good at something. You're right.
0: Well, do you know how much uh, how many free drinks I'm going to get if I say true or false? John <laughs> Feinstein. <laughs>
1: yeah, you'll, you'll win every round.
0: Hey, uh, go back to your book for a second. I'm not sure if I understood this part correctly, but were you, were you kind of making the case that uh, the two men at the 68 Olympics were really the ground zero for Black Lives Matter?
1: Well, I I think, yes, as as a matter of fact. Um, I agree. And you have to include Peter Norman, uh, the Australian who won the silver medal and who wore a button supporting them and probably was treated worse in Australia than Tommy Smith and John Carlos were treated here in the United States. Um, he wasn't chosen for the 72 Olympic team, even though he'd made, met all the qualifying standards. Um, they didn't even invite him to the 2000 Olympics. They claimed that they they couldn't afford to bring in all the ex Olympians from Australia. Well, he was an ex Olympian who'd won a silver medal and still held a record for the 200 in Australia, the United States Olympic committee ended up bringing him in as a guest. And when Peter Norman died in 2006 of a heart attack, uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos both flew to Australia, and they were pallbearers and eulogists at his funeral. And 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 when I spoke to them, they spoke very warmly of Peter Norman. But yeah, I think that that was a beginning. Uh, and and that that photo of the two of them with their fists in the air. And it's kind of interesting. I didn't know this until I I talked to them that they were both going to wear gloves on each hand. But John Carlos forgot to bring his gloves. So Tommy gave him his left glove and kept the right glove. He said, because I'm right handed. And that's why. And but it worked out so well. So The
0: power salute came from one guy forgetting
1: from from an accident, from a mistake.
0: What did they say about their feelings on the progress or little progress that we've made?
1: You know, it, it. It it was very interesting for a couple of reasons. John Carlos actually called me the day after the insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, We had spoken once already, and he knew I lived in Washington, D.C., but he didn't know where. And he called and he said, are you okay?" And I said, I'm fine. I live in the suburbs. You know, I wasn't anywhere near what was going on there. Um, And and then he said to me, if that had been a Black Lives Matter rally and they had invaded the Capitol." that way how many people do you think would have been dead and the answer of course was hundreds uh and he said it's you know we're 43 years since 43 years 53 years excuse me since tom tommy and i raised our fists and look at where we are have we made again this whole whole thing that's the premise of the book have we made progress of course you know when i talked to leonard hamilton who you know well He said to me, look, I drew I grew up with Jim Crow. I grew up not being able to sit downstairs in a movie theater or drink from a whites only water fountain. So how can I say there's been no progress? But we landed a man on the moon 50 years ago and we still can't get along on Earth. And (laughs) I think that's a hell of a point.
0: Why is it, as you observe it, that uh, there haven't been more. Black golfers after Tiger, there haven't been that many more for all the success that Venus and Serena had. You just don't see thousands of them in the
1: lower ranks. Well, Venus and Serena have done better than Tiger did. I mean, we have had uh, Sloan Stevens won a major title right. and we have had Madison people, Keys. And we've had a few several black female players ranked in the top 10, the top 20. Um, but you're right, certainly about golf. And I think uh, Harold Varner, who is black and is on the PGA tour, uh, thinks that some of it is, you know, there've been millions of dollars poured into the first tee programs around the country that started after Tiger won the Masters. Um, But he said, and and he's trying to help with the the first tee programs in North Carolina now, but he says it's basically been daycare. It's, you know, you've got what you basically have to do is you got to get kids on the golf courses and saying, oh, you can come here and hit balls. I mean, I remember when I started playing golf when I was 14, I didn't want to hit balls. I wanted to play. Everybody wants to play, especially when you're a kid and, you know, you sit there and learn the rules of golf and all that. But they need more programs where kids can just go out and play because if they get those, that's what happened to Harold. His father paid a hundred dollars a summer for him to be able to play Monday through Friday at a municipal golf course in Gastonia, North Carolina. So he went out, played and got good. And so then the members started asking him to play because he was so good. And he ended up getting a golf scholarship to East Carolina. But we don't have enough of that. And the other thing is, frankly, the other thing, Leslie, frankly, is that Tiger hasn't done that much to try to encourage more black kids to play the game. I mean, he's just, that's just not who he is. We need an Arthur Ashe in golf.
0: Correct. Correct. But is it also economic in the sense that we still have uh, such financial inequity between the races in this country and kids can't play golf and they really don't have tennis courts for the most part. And also it's, uh, you know, for a kid growing up in that circumstances, he wants to be Steph Curry.
1: Tennis is easier than golf. You know, all you need is a rock, racket. There are public courts in many places that I see empty. So I think part of the problem there is that it, since you and I covered tennis when it was a big deal, uh, it, it, tennis is a dead sport in this country in many ways. And part of that is because we haven't had a real American champion since Andy Roddick. And we're certainly not living in the era of McEnroe and Connors and Sampras and Agassi and Courier and all those guys. Um, but th- and that's part of it. But go- with golf, you're right. It's much tougher financially, and it's going to take people making a real effort to say, "We want to get kids on golf courses. We we want to get them into competition." Um, you know, a lot of rich white kids spend a lot of time traveling and being treated like kings if they're talented juniors. Well, we need more of that in, in the black community. And one thing Harold Varner's come up with is in North Carolina, he has approached a number of public courses and said let them play for $5 a round, you know? And and if you get that chance, maybe a few of them will rise to the top. There has not been a single black player to come out of the first tee. It's been around 25 years to make it to the PGA Tour. The only player who's made it to the PGA Tour is a minority, Scott Langley, because he's (laughs) left-handed.
0: Is, um, when you spoke to the NFL people, as you know, the owners are billionaires. Uh, how, what is the closest, how close are we to a black owner?
1: I, I don't know that we are. Um, I don't know where he or she will come from. Uh, David Stern went out of his way to find Robert Johnson, who he knew had the money from running the PET, um, and got him into the league as a black owner. Uh, but I don't see any desire on the part of the NFL owners to change what they've got. And, and why should they? They're, they're making more money than they can count. The TV ratings, which did dip a little bit uh, in, during the presidential election in 2016 and 2017, uh, are good again. Um, and I, I remember during the last lockout in 2011, uh, I said to one of the owners, I said, you guys, because the NBA and NHL had, had just had lockouts and pleaded poverty. You know, we're going to go out of business if we don't change the contract. And I said, you guys can't plead that. You're making so much money on the TV deals. And he said, no, no, no. We, we, we know we make money. We admit we make money. We just want to make more money. Here would be a great opportunity. Dan Snyder is arguably the worst owner in the history of sports. And he, he's been caught out on so many things, the, late, the latest, of course, being all the misogyny within his um, <clears throat> team and franchise and organization. So instead of finding him $10 million, which is the equivalent of finding me $10, um, and, and having his wife, whose, uh, frankly, attitudes are exactly the same as his, uh, become the so-called CEO, um, why not 24 votes out of 32? He has to sell the team. Why not, in the, while you're in that process, go out and find a Black owner for Washington, D.C., for a team that formerly had a racist nickname?
0: Exactly. I mean, and there are all kinds of places in entertainment where there are very, very wealthy African-Americans. And I do you think there's could there be almost not a reverse racism? But if you look at up and down the East Coast, the owners of NFL teams, what do these people have in common? Bob Kraft, Jeffrey Luria, uh, what's, what, Snyder, uh, Tepper, uh, Stephen Ross.
1: And some of those guys are relatively new owners. Correct. I mean, Tepper certainly is. Stephen Ross, not as much. But Dill Kraft, of course, has been an owner forever. Uh, and, and, you know, part of it, I, I blame us as in the media for some of this, because, you know, because you've been around the NFL, you're in the Hall of Fame. Um, most of the media that covers the NFL is white. Not all, but most. And most go along with what they're told by the league and by the owners. And I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, when Kaepernick was blackballed in 2017, which he clearly was. I mean, the guy was 29, he'd been a starter the year before. All of a sudden, he can't find a job with any of the 32 teams. Go back and read some of the clips with anonymous quotes. And that's a, we could get to a whole hour on what's wrong with sports journalism today because of anonymous quotes. You notice in this book, there's not a single anonymous quote. Not
0: a single. And I noticed that. And that is who you are, John Feinstein. If somebody couldn't say it to you for the record, you're not interested.
1: Exactly right. Because it's too easy to manipulate things if you if you don't have to be responsible for what you say or for what you write. And there were all these stories on Kaepernick quoting unnamed executives saying, well, he's not being blackballed. He just can't play. Come on, do better than that. And then that, that, that phony tryout. He had a couple of years ago in Atlanta. And they moved it? Well, yeah, he moved it because the NFL was saying no one can record it except for the Falcons. And it's closed to the public, closed to the media. Only scouts are allowed in. And he said, no, no, I don't want you controlling, the, the, you know, the, the narrative on what, how I look. I want people to see. I want there to be video. I want media people there. So he moved it to a high school. Uh, And only seven of the 30 scouts who had allegedly been down there showed up uh, because apparently they couldn't get an Uber to get out to the high school or something. And when I I walked into the press box that week, I was covering a a Ravens game and I was pounced on by friends of mine in the media saying, see, see, your boy Kaepernick, he screwed it up. And I'm like, no, he didn't. But the only people in that press box who defended me were, were black reporters.
0: Correct. Yeah, that's what I had in the beginning when uh, I was the first woman to cover the NFL as a beat. Uh, the the guys, Sugar Bear Hamilton, Tony McGee, some of the defensive linemen for the Patriots, I'd watch tape uh, film with them. Then, right, you put it up on a sheet, and uh, they they'd explain this is what the guard's responsibility is, this is what the nose tackle does. And uh, one time, I said to him, you know, um, why are you guys so great to me? And Sugar Bear said, because we know what it's like to be the only one. I I think this country, we go in convulsions, you know, in the 60s, of which um, I'm a little bit more than you, but we're children of the 60s protests. And, you know, we had equal rights. We had civil rights. That was a convulsion. And it changed things in the 60s. So this convulsion that we just went through You have to hope that what will come out of it, because many things did come out of those 60s revolutions. Are you discouraged or do you feel like there is much more to be to be learned and to be accomplished?
1: Well, there's certainly much more to to be learned and accomplished. Somebody asked me the other day what I wanted people to take away from this book. And my answer was there that there is still much more we need to do, but it's doable If we try, you can't just sit back and say, ah, you know, there's nothing we can do. And one of the things that encouraged me about the Black Lives Matter rallies, you know, in spite of people on the right calling them thugs and things like that, there were a lot of white people involved. Most of the civil rights marches involved 90% black people. And, And to me, that was progress. Tommy Smith and John Carlos both said to me, someday Colin Kaepernick will be looked at the way we are, you know, as a hero, because they are now looked at as heroes. And I think that will happen. I really do. I, I, and I think it will happen faster than it happened um, with with Tommy and John. Or
0: for but, Arthur Ashe. How about when you'd be in Richmond and they'd have all those massive uh, statues to Stonewall right. Jackson? And at the end, it was just like a little head of Arthur Ashe, which they've corrected.
1: You know, Jaka Smart, who coached in Richmond at VCU uh, for six years, told me that every day he would drive down Monument Avenue, as it's called, and drive past the statues of Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, and other Confederate war heroes. And I said, why did you do that? And he said, because I wanted to remind myself that if those who came before me could overcome that that I could overcome what I was dealing with as a as a black college basketball coach. And and he was very clear on the fact that guys like John Thompson and Nolan Richardson and John Cheney inspired him. And and he said, you know, he got in trouble down at the University of Texas because he was critical of Trump. And, you know, Texas is a very red state. Um, Trump still won by six percent and over Biden in 2020. And, and a lot of Texas boosters weren't happy when he said what he said. But and, and, as he said to me, he said, what I got was nothing compared to what the guys who came before me dealt with. So, oh, that's a
0: beautiful story. I, I,
1: I well, uh, Shaka is one of the really smart guys um, in, in, in sports. And I'll tell you a quick story. You know, my wife, Christine, knows nothing about sports. The first time I took her to the Army Navy game as we were driving into town, she said, now, what sport are they playing tomorrow? Um, and she says, when I talk about sports, I sound like the, the adults in, in Peanuts. Wham, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> but we were at a dinner, at a, at a charity dinner, and she sat next to Shaka. And as we walked out that night, she said, I don't know anything about basketball, but stick close to that guy because he's really smart. And I have because I'm smart enough to listen to my wife.
0: <laughs> Good job. Um, John, I want to thank you. But before I finish, I want to tell you that in my 45 year career, I've only known two other people that I think have whatever the quality is that you have. And they were Pat Summerall and Jim Nance. And I say this because Pat and Jim and yourself, whatever sport you're doing, they think you belong to them. And, you know, Pat, everybody in golf thought Pat belonged to golf. Everybody in football, college basketball thinks you belong. Golf thinks you belong. And uh, I think it is just the quality that you have as a listener and your enthusiasm and and really the greatness of your writing. So I want to thank you for this and wish you really great luck with such a brilliant book.
1: Well, thank you. I I, I appreciate those kind words. I really do. Uh, I will hold them against you. Believe me, I'll use them against you. Excuse me, uh, but no, seriously, I, I do really appreciate you saying that, and I like to think that the reason someone like you, who knows sports as well as you do, might say that is because most of my books are really about people; they just happen to be involved in sports. And I think it, 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 true of "Raise a Fist, Take a Knee" because these are people who've been in sports most of their lives, but who have been affected as we all have, um, by, by race, only they, the black guys I interviewed are more affected than you and I can possibly be. And that was sort of the point I was trying to make.
0: And that was my conversation with John Feinstein. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today on Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you stream your podcast to enjoy new episodes every week. In Conversation with Leslie Visser is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network and is available on the SXM app, included with most subscriptions. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer, sound design by Robert Moore, and special thanks to Sirius XM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Talk to you next week. Sirius XM Podcasts.